morning, church. Um, precious worship, precious worship. You know, as we were singing there that he is the anthem of our hearts, the anchor of our souls, I'm just reminded that uh, there is a tether between us and the very presence of God. There's a tether that takes us from this present existence through this life, beyond this life, through the veil, so to speak, into the presence of the living God. And nothing can break that tether. That's the thing that truly amazes me. I love the high priestly prayer of Jesus and, uh, in John chapter 17. And he's talking about how he's going back to the Father. And uh, he's talking about the, 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 the saints that were there, the disciples that were being raised up. And, and he was praying for them and he was praying for you and I. And I love there's a moment there where Jesus is talking to the Father. And he's talking about to the, the family of God. And he says... I've lost none of them. You know, lost none of them. There's a time when we will be in the presence of God. All of us. Everyone that God has, has, has had chosen for the eternal kingdom of God. Everyone that has placed their faith in Christ for forgiveness. None will be lost. And I love that thought, especially in days like today when we are finding ourselves, even as Marty was saying, separated by geography, but joined together in the presence of our God and the purpose of our God. And I'm often praying you know, these days for our brothers and sisters who I don't see. You know, I love this medium that we have now to be able to communicate. I love our prayer meetings on Sunday night. I love our Bible studies because I can be face to face with people, but still the physical, the physical connection is not there. And sometimes I'm praying, sometimes I'm wondering, I hope everybody's okay. I, I, I hope everybody's okay. But then I'm just encouraged by God to know that his hand is upon us all and he's not going to lose any of us. He's not going to let any of us go. And it's just such an encouragement to know, to know in these days that the God of heaven and earth who saved us is the God who keeps us and is the God who strengthens us and the God who holds us within his hands. Isn't that what he says in John chapter 10? We're held within his hands and there is nothing that can take us from those hands. We love Romans chapter 8 that tells us that nothing can separate us from his love. We have this incredible confidence that we can have, no matter what's happening in this world, no matter what we're facing, no matter what the trial, the struggle, the separation, it doesn't matter because we're his. We're his family of God. And it's precious to know that. Precious to know that. I trust you're well. I trust you've had a good week. I trust that God has been speaking to you and encouraging you as you seek him day to day. Some of us um, certainly, uh, some of us certainly need our prayers at this time. So I, I trust that you are praying for one another. And I would just like it right now, if we could just pause for a minute before we open the scriptures and just uh, just commit one another to the Lord, shall we? So if you bow your hearts and bow your heads with me, let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for these wonderful truths for this glorious hope that we have, this ever-present reality that you are with us and you'll never leave us nor forsake us, this wonderful promise that you'll provide all our needs according to your riches and glory. How wonderful it is to be your child, to have your hand upon us, to know that you are working, that you are daily changing us, transforming us from glory into glory towards that image, Father. Father, 
And thank you, Lord, for the promise that you're coming again to receive us unto yourself, that you've given us a heart that doesn't have to trouble, but to know and have confidence in who you are and, who, and what you are doing and what you will continue to do. So, Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for being able to gather. But we're reminded, Lord God, that some of us, uh, some of us are not doing so well. And again, we, Father, we ask uh, for anyone within our fellowship, with anyone who's joining us, who's, who's struggling, Lord God, that the power of your presence would be so very real and very present right now. Lord, that you would just minister to our hearts. Father, we ask again for Magdalena and for Aaron and James, Lord, for Faith and Matthew, Lord, that they would know your comfort in these days. Father, we ask for Wendy, Lord, that your hand would be upon her to lift her heart to you, to know your sufficiency for her life. We thank you, Father, for your healing hand upon her body. Sovereign God, that you would move according to your purposes for her life. Thank you, precious Lord, that you are all that we need and that you will never abandon us. Thank you, Father, for this great confidence. We ask these things in Jesus' name and we give you praise in, in anticipation of the great things you continue to do in and through us. In Jesus' name again, we thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, as Steve said, we want to begin a new series that we're calling, um, we are calling Live Again. And it certainly is about personal revival, as Jesus, as Stephen said. Um, I, was, I, was, um, I was thinking about, let me just put this here for a second. I was thinking about um, what is it, it is to be a Christian in this world. And I realized that there have been few, if any at all, have placed, who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ to be their saviour. There are few, if any of all, that have done that and then sailed from victory to victory along the way in their walk with Jesus Christ. There have been few, if any of all, that have ascended from spiritual height to spiritual height without stumbling. To see the flesh nature put in the grave, to never ever again raise its ugly head, to serve Jesus Christ faithfully every single day of, of their life without ever compromising. I said, I, 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 know, I believe there are few, if any at all. In fact, no, I changed my mind. There are none, are there? There are none that have been able to do that. And it's important for us to understand that that's the life we live. We live in a life that has resistance. We have, there is an enemy, there is a struggle, but there is a Christ who lives within us. Isn't that what Jesus said to the disciples on that last night as he was preparing to leave? He prepared their hearts for the ministry, reminding them that the Spirit of God was coming. He said, another will come who is like me and he will be with you and he will be in you. And that's why we have the Apostle Paul crying out those victorious cries. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. But even so, we find the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 declaring that incredible struggle, that incredible struggle that brought him to that cry, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he launches into the victorious cry of it is Christ Jesus. Isn't that right? We know it. Every one of us knows it. 
Every one of us experiences in our life a spiritual dryness from time to time in our walk with Jesus Christ. We all know that struggle of prayerlessness. We all know what it is to, to struggle to, to open the pages of Scripture. But because we are His, and I can't stress this enough, because we are His, there is always a yearning. No matter how spiritually dry we may feel, there's always a yearning within our spirits to see our passion, our desire for Jesus to be rekindled. It's there, Christian. It's there in every one of you. There's always this desire, there is this, there is this cry to be ignited with a blaze of fervent love for the one who gave his life for us that we might know life eternal. It's always there. And I want to remind you of that today. Because we may have silenced it with our neglect of spiritual things and replaced it with passions for desires of the things of this life. We may have done that, but it's there, child of God. And it's there just crying out. There's a longing to know in every single one of us, isn't there? There's a longing to know that our life blesses and pleases his heart. And no matter how far we may drift from that place where our lives are a a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Because we are His, because it is God's Spirit that works within us, there is always a cry from within. Your heart is always child of God. That heart that is tethered to the very throne of God is always crying out, will you revive me again that I might rejoice in you, O Lord? And again, it's because we're his. He will never, ever, and this is the confidence that we can have in our Saviour, he will never, ever fail to answer our cries of desperation. I think about that and I always see the disciples in that boat on the Sea of Galilee when their life is being tossed from this way to that way and they're fearing for their very life and they cry out, don't they? They cry out, don't you care that we perish? And of course that cry of passion rises and stands up and brings peace to the situation. You know what I'm talking about this morning? I'm talking about personal revival. You know what revival literally means? It literally means to live again. It is the regaining of a spiritual consciousness. It is the believer who has become content with a stagnant, compromised, powerless Christian life. It is the believer who is no longer turning away from unrighteousness but is starting to become comfortable in the very things that they know they shouldn't be. They're no longer sharing their faith. The urgency for the lost to be saved is gone. They are wordless. They are prayerless. They need to live again. They need to know that life of Christ vibrant moving through them. They need to be revived. So what do we do? What do we do if we want to hear that cry? If we want that cry to burst forth from our beings into newness of life? Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to acknowledge who we are. 
We have to acknowledge that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God because sometimes we can find ourselves not living like sons and daughters of the Most High God and the enemy is always there to tell you. Always there to tell you that God will not accept you, that you're not his child. Look at the way you behave. He's always whispering those lies and he speaks that that into our hearts and we crumble under it and we forget who we are. We forget that we're sons and daughters of the Most High God. We forget that we have been saved. We've been washed clean by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That We've been brought with a price. We're not our own body and soul. We belong to him. And you've got to tell yourself that. You've got to tell yourself that you're a child of the living God. And we have to come before him. We have to come before him mournfully. And in that poverty of spirit. Because we know in and of ourselves we've got nothing that we have to offer. Nothing to give whereby he should accept us. But everything that he has to give to us is given to us freely of his grace and his love. Isn't that right? You've got to be reminded that's who you are, child of God. You've got to be reminded that's what you have received from him. We've got to come to him mournfully. We've got to come to him in poverty of spirit. We have to acknowledge our sin before him. We have to be seeking him with a hungering and a thirsting for his cleansing forgiveness. We need to start. We need to start in his presence. That's where Revival starts. That's where that life or living again begins. When we realise who we are and what we've been set free from and the power of God to sanctify us and call us according to his purpose. We've got to be reminded that's who we are and we start in the very presence of the living God which means we need to be a pair, a people of prayer, of passionate prayer. Let me read this to you. A.W. Tozer said on the subject of revival, he said many things, but he said, put yourself in the way of the blessing. It is a mistake to look for grace to visit us as a kind of benign magic or to expect God's help to come as a windfall apart from conditions known and met. There are plainly marked paths which lead straight to the green pastures. Let us walk in them. He says this, to to desire revival, for instance, and at the same time to neglect prayer and devotion is to wish one way and to walk another. E.M. Bounds said these words. He said, when God becomes so... So when God's... People become so concerned about the state of religion that they lie on their face day and night in earnest supplication. Then he says, then the blessing surely will fall. We go back to the Old Testament. And God said these words. He said these words to the nation Israel. They're words that we quote all the time. Oh, that they would find power in our lives he said in 2 chronicles chapter 7 verse 14 if my people you know it don't you if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then will i hear from heaven and will forgive their sin 
and will hear their land. Did you hear it? Did you hear it? Did your hearts cry, hear it? If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and, did you hear it? Pray. You see, prayer has always been central to revival. That's why I say to you, you need to recognise who you are. You need to know what God has done to save you. And you need to recognise that that salvation, that cleansing of sin is for a purpose. It's for a life to be lived. And so we've got to start with the one who has given us life. We've got to start in his very presence. And of course, Jesus is the perfect example of that. Jesus' view or Jesus' view of prayer was one that is essential to the fullness of his relationship with the Father. It wasn't a religious duty. How sad it is when we see prayer like that because that's not what it was to Jesus. It wasn't a religious duty. It was his lifestyle. We look at Christ. He was living an example to encourage a lifestyle of intimate fellowship with the Father. To the followers of Jesus, prayer is a way of life. He demonstrated a life sustained by the Father through constant communion. One commentator said this. They said he lived in unbroken fellowship with his Father. He walked in perfect holiness. He preached with authority and he shook the status quo. I love that statement. He shook the status quo. He walked in perfect holiness, in unbroken fellowship with his father. And he had authority in his life because of it. In Mark's, it's just one place we could go to. But in Mark's gospel in the first chapter, we have an instance where Jesus prayed. It's in verse 35. But leading up to that verse, we see the power and the authority of Christ. We see the example of Christ being lived out. We see in verses 16 through to 20, I'll just take you through this. We see in the verses through 16 through to 20 where Jesus calls his disciples. And then in verse 21 and 22, he's preaching in the synagogue. In verse 23 through 28, he is casting out demons. In, in, in verse 29 through to verse 34, he is healing the sick. What we see is Jesus going about his father's business. We see the preaching. We see the power of Jesus. And now we see his passion. We're given this brief glimpse into this early morning. You're given no detail, but we're given this brief glimpse, glimpse sorry, into this early morning quiet time. And we see what was important to Jesus. And what was important to Jesus, Christian, should be important to every one of us. It's this passion that we find that he had for prayer. It simply says, now in the morning, after that day, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and he departed to a solitary place and he prayed. Like I said, you're not given any detail. 
But again, after preaching in the synagogue, Jesus was, I'll go back there, was confronted by by demon powers, by by a demon-possessed man, and Jesus cast that demon out. He leaves the synagogue. He goes to Peter's house for lunch. And when he arrives there, he finds Peter's mother-in-law is sick of a fever and he heals her. When sundown comes, people from, in, from all, all through Capernaum being sick and, 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 and are brought to him and he heals them all. And he does this and in no doubt, you know, people helping people all the way through the night. Yet a late night, and I love this, yet a late night for Jesus doesn't prevent him from an early morning meeting with his father. We're told that Jesus rose up a long while before day. And I don't read this to give you a a formula, but I read this to remind you of a passion. Because it takes a passion to be in the presence of God, doesn't it? To get up a long way before the day. And he went to a secluded place and he prayed. I don't know what time it was. No doubt sometime between 3, maybe 4 a.m. in the morning before the sun has risen. And this is not the only time we find Jesus in this, in communion with his father. In fact, his ministry is marked by protracted times of prayer. You know, Jesus is pictured no less than 25 times setting himself apart Seeking the presence of God in the Gospels. You know, prayer is identified, in fact, as a mark of the Messiah. Back in Isaiah chapter 50, we have this, this, this prophetic picture of Christ. And it says, he awakens me. This is verse 4. It says, he awakens me. Morning after morning, he awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear And I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. And it goes on to talk about how he gave his back to those who struck him and his cheeks to those who plucked out his beard. And he did not hide his face from the shame and the spitting. The fact that Jesus prayed and was woken like this, because we find so much of our time slumbering in this life, I'm not just talking about a phys- the physical reality of need to sleep. But I read this prophetic picture of Christ. And he was never slumbering in the sense of not being awake to the presence of God. And because Jesus prayed this way, it becomes so obvious to us that we need to be never slumbering. But we need to be aware of God's presence in our life moment by moment. Most of our praying, it can be described as, as, as adoration, as, as confession, as thanksgiving, as supplication. That's how it's described in the scriptures. But of course, Jesus was the sinless son of God. So most certainly he was not praying for forgiveness. There was not confession. But we can, we can assume Again, without detail being given, we can assume that he spent much of his time in adoration and thanksgiving and supplication before the Father. Jesus went out to pray that morning again after this day of powerful ministry. 
And I'm sure he took time with thanksgiving. He took time to thank the Father for the blessing. He took time to thank the Father for the presence of his power. I'm sure that he prayed for the people that were healed. I'm sure he prayed for the people that they would see beyond the miracle. I'm sure he prayed that their hearts would truly be arrested. I'm certain he prayed for the life of his disciples, that they would be men of God. And I'm certain, I'm certain that he prayed for himself. We see that in John Chapter 17, that he sought the Father for himself. He he desired the Father's blessing. He desired the Father's power. Surely Jesus went out that morning to seek the Father's will for direction and ministry. And I'll say it again, for that power. He said to the religious leaders, remember? He said, most assuredly, I say unto you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself. But what he does, he sees the Father doing. And whatever he does, so also does the Son do in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he does himself. I guess, I guess one question we have to answer is why did Jesus need to pray anyway? Because we know that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. But I want you to see this this morning. Because if he is praying, all the more need for us to be praying, to be in the Father's presence. So the Bible teaches us that Jesus is not merely someone who is a lot like God. Or someone who is very close to God. No, but rather it teaches us that he is the most high God himself. I love the cry from Titus in chapter 2. It says, as Christians, we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love seeing Thomas after the resurrection falling down before Jesus saying, my Lord and my God and worshipping him as God. Likewise, I love to read it in the book of Hebrews that gives us God the Father's direct testimony of who Christ is. When he said, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, quoting from the Psalms. The Bible also teaches that Jesus Christ had divine attributes. He knows everything. I can give you verses. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Luke chapter 11, verse 17. John chapter 4, verse 29. He knows all things. He has all power. Again, Matthew chapter 8. John chapter 11. Luke chapter 17. Revelation chapter 1. He has all power. He depends on nothing outside of himself for life. John again, chapter 1 and chapter 14 and chapter 8 of the Gospels. The Bible is through, is full of it throughout, throughout the testimony of who Jesus really is. He rules over everything. Matthew chapter 28, Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 19. He never began. He always existed. John chapter 1. He is our creator. Colossians chapter 1. In other words, everything that God is, Jesus is, for Jesus is our God, the Bible teaches us. So I'm back to the question, why did he need to pray? We need to remember this, that Jesus was God in human flesh. But he did not come to this world to live as God. That's why he was born 
as a baby from a human woman. That is why we read of him becoming weary. That is why we read of him thirsting and him being hungry. That is why he experienced a full range of human emotions such he marveled and he, and he sorrowed and he wept, you know. He lived on earth just as we do. He came to live as an example for you and I what it is to be a spirit-filled man. When he was tempted in the wilderness at the beginning of his earthly ministry, he responded to the temptations of the devil and he said, he answered, he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, Jesus had to be fully man in order to die for our sins, but he had to be fully God to raise from the dead. See, the union of Christ's deity and humanity in one person make it such that we have no need of, of, of any other saviour. He's everything that we need. Because Jesus is God, he is all-powerful and he cannot be defeated. Because Jesus is God, he is the only adequate saviour for mankind. Because Jesus is God, believers are safe and they will never perish and they will have eternal security. Because Jesus is God, we can have confidence that he will empower us for whatever he's calling us to do in this life. But at the same time, because Jesus came as a man... He experienced the very same things that we do. He can identify with us. He can identify with us intimately. He came to our aid, or he comes to our aid, I should say, as a sympathetic high priest. Because he is a man, we, he came as a man, we can relate to him as he relates to us. He's never far off. I love that Marty said, I love that Marty said that we're just a click away. Well, Christ is just so present with us because he knows what it is to be one of us. Because he is a man, we cannot complain that God doesn't know what we're going through. And because he was a man, he is our supreme example. This is where I'm getting to this morning. Because he was a man, who came as a man, he is our supreme example and standard of how it is that we should live this life. That's why the Apostle Paul would cry out, imitate me, even as I imitate Christ. And so fully man, back on subject, Jesus prayed because he lived his life in total dependence upon the Father. Jesus prayed because he wanted a totally unhindered fellowship with the Father. Jesus wanted the Holy Spirit to be able to flow through his life in absolute freedom and power as an example to you and I. Jesus made every effort to stay intimately close in constant communion with his Father. And I like it that he went and found a secluded place. He wanted his communion with the Father to be uninterrupted, to be unhindered. Jesus knew that his prayer time was so precious and private and he wanted nothing to be able to come between him and that communion. And if that's who Jesus was, 
And that's what Jesus felt he needed to do. And if he came to be that example to you and I, how much more do I, how much more do every one of us need to make prayer a priority within our own lives? It is essential. It's essential for a holy, empowered, spiritual life. Every time, I said to you, no less than 25 times, and every time we see Jesus separate himself and seek the Father, it might be during the evening, it might be, it might be it, wherever it was, every time we see it, it's always followed by the incredible. Haven't you noticed that? Always followed by the incredible. Always followed by the supernatural. Always followed by the powerful. Always followed by something that glorifies the Father. Someone said prayer is a time of exposure to God. And sadly, I've got to say this, most Christians these days are underexposed. But I will also say that I've never seen a Christian that is overexposed because I don't believe we can be overexposed. If we want a life that can be used by God, if we want to know this revival power within our lives, if we want to be used for his glory, then we've got to be people of prayer. We've got to be people passionately seeking the presence of God. If we want the power of God on our lives, then we must pray. If we want to live holy lives, then we must pray. Prayer is an absolute, let me say this, non-negotiable requirement for the life of power in the things of God. It is non-negotiable. The Bible has so much to say about it. I started lift, listing off these verses and and if you're really quick, no, you won't be quick enough. But he says, we are commanded to pray. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17. Luke chapter 18 and verse 1. Romans chapter 12 and verse 12. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18. Colossians chapter 8, sorry, chapter 4 and verse 2. We are commanded to pray. We're given instructions how to pray in the Gospels. Luke 11, Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. We have these incredible examples of men and women who pray. We see men like Abraham and Moses and, 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 and people like Hannah and Samuel and Nehemiah and Elijah and Elisha and Hezekiah and Jonah and Paul and, of course, Jesus. We are given promises in prayer. It's been well said. It's been well said that prayer is not about getting our will done on earth, on in, sorry, let me say that again. It's been well said that prayer is not about getting our will done in heaven, but it's about God's getting, getting God's will done on earth. Did I get that out in the end? I got that out in the end? Okay. So Je when Jesus went out to pray, it's clear that he prayed about the direction of his ministry. He's going to get up when they finally find him, and they're going to try and drag him back to where all the people are waiting for him, and he's going to say to them, no, we need to go to another place I'm going to preach he says because that's why I have come clearly he sought the Lord about direction for his ministry and I find that to, so often to be a contrast to the human prayer because so often we make our plans we bring them to God and we ask them to bless them to bless the things we've already decided to do. It, it, it's backwards. Prayer must become a priority in my life. 
if I want to have the right kind of life, to have the power of God in my life, to have close fellowship with the Lord. If I desire to be used fully to my life's potential, the reason God saved me, then without prayer, none of it is possible. So we see Jesus as our example. So we set aside time to pray. We set it aside, we stick to it. We find a place where there is no distractions. We get away from the phone, we get away from the TV, we get away from the computer and any other thing, any other distraction. You know, it's odd, you know. We, in our modern world, have, have all these mod cons, we call them. You know, and smart men have invented them so that we can buy them from them and they're reportedly given to us so that we can save time. They're called time savers. But the problem is we've got so many of these mod cons that we have no time to do anything else other than to have them, pay for them, use them and update them. Isn't that right? You know? We need to be removed from the distractions, whatever they may be. You know, I, I was talking to the people at where I worked during the week, and I, and they're all, they're all above eighty. Most of them are in their nineties, and I was talking about these very things, you know, and just chatting with them and reflecting upon their life and their walk of faith and. And they talked about prayer and they talked about communion. And I was struck by the reality as they spoke, there was very little distraction in their life as far as the things that distract us. You know. Certainly they had distractions. Certainly they were a busy generation. Certainly they, they faced so much they had to sacrifice. They worked so hard, you know, so hard. But when it comes to seeking him, all these distractions, they weren't there. And it made me, there was a sense within me, it just made me long for those simpler times. But then I realised, well, those times, they're the same today. They're only not simple because I surround myself and I can't separate myself from all of these voices that are trying to speak into the experience of my life. And none of them have anything to do with God's purpose. You know, I gather them and I surround myself with them because they're going to make my life better. But all they ever do is distract me from who God wants me to be. And I'm laboring the point because we've got to make that decision, Christian. We've got to make that decision to separate us from all the things that distract us from him so that we can know the sweetness of that communion, that fellowship that God would have us to enjoy with him. Prayer was a habit in Jesus' life and it must become a habit in our lives if we are going to know the power that God wants us to have in this life. You see, the reason the disciples came to Jesus in the Gospels and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And that's always, always, always grabbed my attention that they would ask him to teach them to pray because they've seen him do so many incredible things, haven't they? You know, Peter was, Peter was 
stepped out of the boat and walked on the waves towards Christ, even if but for a second. You know, and there's nowhere in the scripture where Peter says afterwards, Lord, I really, I really love that. How did that happen? You know, and of course, the Lord did so many things. He, he, he raised up the dead. He raised up the lame. He brought sight to the blind. He did so many things. I never find anywhere in the scriptures where the disciples say, hey, Lord, that was really cool. Will you teach me how to do that? The only thing we find is the disciples saying, Lord, teach us how to pray. And the reason they said that is because they recognised the connection between all of those incredible things that God did and the intimate relationship he had with the Father. You know what? Whenever Jesus disappeared from the disciples for a night, I'm sure they were sitting there when they went looking for him. When he arrived again, I'm sure they had this sense of anticipation within their hearts. Man, today is going to be an interesting day. He's been with God. He's been with his Father. He's been seeking wisdom. He's been seeking direction. This is going to be a crazy day. Crazy good day, you know. That's why they asked, Lord, teach us to pray. Because we want those days to continue. And you and I should want those days to continue within our lives. We need to be connected. We need to be intimately connected. I want that, don't you? Don't you want that power? Don't you want that revived life? We've all experienced it. Do you remember what it was like when we came into the relationship with the Lord and he saved us and he cleansed us of all unrighteousness? The burden of a life that was heavy and dragging us down was lifted from our souls and we were free. And we went into this world and we rejoiced and we told people about the love and the power and the, and, and the forgiveness of Christ and the hope of eternal life and nothing could stop us. Remember that? That's... That's how we're meant to live. That's how we're meant to be. Live again. Revival life. I want that. But if I would have that power, I must pray. I must pray often. I must pray from a clean heart and pure motivations. Do this, Christian. And God will bless your life. And make your life great blessings to those for Jesus' sake. So I just want you to recognise this morning, despite all of the pressures that were piling up around him, we have this example that Jesus made the time to talk to the Father. You know, he was too busy not to pray. And so are we. There's too much going on not to pray. Never allow the busyness of this life to crowd prayer out of your life. Because what you are doing is you are allowing the busyness of this life to crowd not only prayer, but to crowd out of your life the very direction, the very source that you need to be able to do life as God wants you to do it. Remember this. If, you're, if, you, if you remember anything, remember this, neither tiredness 
nor time, nor delay, nor treasure, nor task. Nothing was more important than the time he spent with his father. And so it should be with you and I. Can I close with a quote this morning? It says, one of the first things prayer accomplishes in the tr- is the transformation of the person who prays. He who does not pray stops the Spirit's revolutionising power in his life. The Christian either rises or falls according to his prayer life. The Holy Spirit will not force his way through the barrier of prayerlessness. We must willfully open our hearts. True prayer is an act of surrender to God. Through it, we place our lives in his service so we may advance his mission of building a community of faith by rescuing lost humanity. Only... From the prayer closet are men and women empowered to take a city, a state, a nation for the glory of God. We have to pray, Christian. We have to look up with passionate adoration and praise to our God, with thanksgiving, with repentant hearts, looking for God's transforming power to be at work within our lives to make us live again. That's what has to happen. I love this quote from an old preacher. Well, he never got to be old. He only lived to be 20, 27, I think. But he's from way back, an old Scottish preacher, Murray McChain. He said, a man is what he is upon his knees and no more. Do you like that? A man is what he is upon his knees and no more. Let's become more than what we are today because we commit ourselves to spend more time upon our knees in his presence. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how glorious again it is to know that we are your sons and daughters, that you've called us to yourself, that you've chosen us, that you've equipped us, that you have plan and purpose, that you want to work in and through us in things before ordained. You want us to walk with you. You want us to lay a hold of your very presence. You want us to live again, to live as a son and a daughter of the Most High God. So Father, this morning, as we begin to consider where we are, who we are, I pray you would ignite our hearts, that that voice would be louder. It would cry desperately, that we would know, we would know, Lord God, that you're wanting to do incredible things. Speak to our hearts. Revive us again, I pray. In Jesus' most precious name.